Hey everybody, welcome back to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, the Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute. And the TeamCast is a show where Dr. Preston Klein and I and our guests discuss all things mission critical teams. MCTs are teams of four to 12 people, indigenously trained, that solve rapidly emergent, complex, adaptive problem sets, and who work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. However narrow the definition of mission critical teams, and whether you're on one or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for being here, and once again, enjoy the TeamCast. Hi, this is Dr. Preston Klein. Today, Coleman and I have a chance to talk with two friends of ours that have unique experience in serving both U.S. Special Operations Command and as NASA astronauts, uh, Chris Cassidy and Drew Morgan. Chris Cassidy received his undergraduate from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1993, the same year he graduated from the BUDS Class 192, becoming a Navy SEAL. He later received his master's in ocean engineering from MIT in 2000, and then later went on to be the head of the astronaut corps as well as an, as a NASA astronaut. Drew Morgan received his undergraduate from West Point, entering the Army as a medical officer. After completing his medical training, he served within units in both U.S. Special Operations Commands and elsewhere. Today, we're going to talk to Chris and Drew about why space exploration matters, how they handle the various transitions in their lives, the building and maintenance of cross-functional teams, and how to look after yourself while in space, and also the nuances of operating in the NASA culture with a special operations mindset. They're one of the few individuals in the world that have served in both U.S. Special Operations Commands and in NASA, which is two very different cultures. It was a lot of fun to record this TeamCast, and I hope you really enjoy it. Thanks. Preston and I have been really looking forward to this for a lot of different reasons. One, you guys have just been great friends to the Mission Critical Teams community in general, and number two... I should say that for the audience's sake, I met Chris Cassidy when I was a freshman at the Naval Academy. In my living room at my first apartment after graduation or after BUDS. That's I remember right. that very vividly. With Lieutenant Commander Bob Miller and my cousin Lisa, his wife, who are your company yeah, officer exactly. and family. They connected us. That was pretty awesome. Yeah. All these years later, here we are. So there's yeah. a lot of links here. I'm still in, I'm still in my living room. You're still in your living room. <laughs> Chris, for, forget the 10 spacewalks and the 54 hours in space. The truth is, is the last time I saw you, you've, you haven't moved from your living room. So, <laughs> right. exactly. so, so here we go. But on the show today for uh, introductions for the audience, we're not going to do the read the entire bio game and embarrass everybody. But we have U.S. Army Colonel Drew Morgan and U.S. Navy Captain Chris Cassidy, both astronauts at NASA. Together, they have 17 spacewalks combined, and they'll correct me on these numbers, but we certainly pulled some items to introduce them appropriately. Drew graduated from West Point in 1998, same year group. I graduated the U.S. Naval Academy. And as I mentioned, uh, I met Chris when I, was a, when I was a plebe at Navy. Chris is a 1993 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. And if your bio is correct, Chris, I didn't know that you also went to NAPS, which I also went to NAPS. So it seems that the derelicts of the world, the prep school kids like me and you can still kind of get somewhere in life, I suppose. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Drew is emergency physician, 
spent time in U.S. Army Special Operations, Black Knights and Golden Knights jump teams when he was in the Army, parachute teams, for those who don't know what those teams are, and was in the NASA class of 2013 and has served on many space flights. I'll let him talk about it. Has seven spacewalks, has journeyed 115 million miles in some kind of craft up in space. And Chris, as I mentioned, graduated the Naval Academy in 93. He was in a NASA class of 2004. I actually was also at SEAL Team 3 with Chris right before he was leaving. I was checking in to SEAL Team 3. So another piece of information for the audience is I actually haven't seen or spoken to Chris for 21 years, but seemed to hover around, you know, the same things when we were both in the SEAL teams. And Chris did time at SEAL Delivery Vehicle. He got a master's degree in ocean engineering at MIT. He worked in the special boat teams before he got to NASA and then has since served as the 14th chief astronaut at NASA, has done 10 spacewalks, spent approximately 54 hours doing spacewalks, and has just recently returned home from another trip in October of 2020. And so I wanted to save us too, too long of an intro, but certainly give the Mission Critical Teams community who knows about this conversation, guys, so everyone's really excited to hear your input. Let me suck the oxygen out of the room for a few more minutes here to set up the first question we want to talk to you guys about. But with intros done, you know, some of the things we'll talk about today are things really important to the mission critical teams community. Transitions in and out of space stations, but in and out of jobs also. Community and team building and maintenance. Interpersonal conflict, cross-functional teams, adaptive thinking, all those fancy thematic terms, but We'll talk about those, you know, we want to hear you guys' stories and your experiences of those things. And we'll also talk about the the real questions, which I prepped Drew on a little bit, Chris, which is my 11-year-old, and I'm sure you guys get these a lot, I asked him what I should ask. And so we do have to find out about pooing and peeing in space because Ollie wants to know. And he also wants to know, is the blast off into space so strong that you might need to learn about it. You got yeah. it. But first, and the first thing we do want to discuss, and I often say let's zoom out to the 30,000 foot level, but I think it would be appropriate to zoom out to the 1,372,800 foot level, given where the ISS hovers in space relative to Earth. And what we want to hear about, Chris, is why do you care why would NASA care? Why should humanity care about space exploration or exploration at all? Yeah, that's a great question. We get that asked a lot about what's the value to humanity for space exploration. And uh, when I was a brand new astronaut, there was this famous astronaut, John Young, was still in the office. He's a legend. And I remember walking in one, one Monday morning meeting and, and hearing him say, single planet species don't survive. And I thought that was far-fetched as a brand new guy, you know, I'm worrying about learning my systems knowledge, but he's absolutely right. You know, I don't know what his data points are, one, dinosaurs maybe, but it's, it's interesting to think about. And I think that humans are meant to explore. People set off in ships and went west and bumped into land. And we're doing the current version of that right now. Just going, instead of going west, we're going up, pushing the frontier of knowledge. And with that comes practical 
benefits to folks on the ground, you know, employment in a new industry, SpaceX popping up, other commercial entities are popping up in, in our country and around the world, which creates enthusiasm, creates jobs, and creates the ability to get there cheaper than just doing it through the government. And on that thought, it, we think of it really as a partnership with the commercial world and the government world kind of merging the capabilities and the speed and agility that, that new young companies bring, allowing us as a nation, us as a humans to get off, get out of a lower orbit, go back to the moon and ultimately onto Mars. So I think that's hopefully not too long of an answer, but we care, Drew cares, I care. I think most people get excited about the thought of watching a person step out of a capsule into a red sandy dust of Mars. Drew, I want to come over to you, obviously, but Chris, if I could follow up a little and we could come back to this later, maybe, but, you know, as a, as a regular non spacewalking citizen, speaking for myself, I'll admit that sometimes when we hear blue origin, SpaceX, and I'll just call them maybe like the tech giants in this area, talk about, we have to be on Mars to survive single planet species don't it, it, it almost seems and I, i'm you know pardon me with the movie thing because i hate the movies in terms of like trying to show you reality but the matt damon movie it just to me i have to admit like i sit there and i think this does not seem practical in any way like you're going to get to mars and what elon musk or somebody is going to then ship sixty thousand people up there and, and you don't have to answer for nasa but just maybe if you could educate all of us a little bit on what is practical in the next two lifetimes that normal people like us should believe? Yeah. So I think about this a lot, especially this year, 2020 and COVID and what the financial impacts are to our economy. And there's like serious problems on earth that money needs to be spent on. And when is it appropriate to spend it on sort of, I hate to say it, but surplus stuff that you don't have to spend that money on to live on earth. And it's one that is worth a debate, right? That's why we're funded through the political process. And, and when the political will is, is there, like in the sixties, when it was a space race, there was political will to beat another nation, to beat the Russians, which ironically are our partners now, but to beat them to, to space, to beat them to the moon. So when is it practical? I don't know, but a hundred, little over a hundred years ago, there was no flight at all. And now Drew flies a million trillion miles around Earth. So it's conceivable to think in another hundred years that we would be laughing at that question and it would be just normal life. I don't know. Maybe it's more than a hundred years. Maybe it's longer. But at some point, it will be achievable that you can buy a ticket and zip up to the moon or probably a little pricier to get to Mars. But who knows what the future will bring. Yeah, it, it's a good point. Thanks for that, Chris. When, when, you, and, when, you, when you and I met, there was no internet. I mean, it, no it's email. true. Yeah. yeah. Drew, can you talk to us about exploration and just your experience and your view? We, yeah, but specifically your question, Coleman, about like where where would we be two lifetimes, you know, two generations down the road or 100 years down the road, like Chris alluded to, you know, just over a century ago, the Wright brothers and, and flight. And the, the, that was just, that was a distant concept. And now 
they couldn't have imagined, or maybe they could only have imagined being where we are today. And something that I have uh, delved into recently, just thinking about is about how it's, it's limited by only our imagination. You mentioned movies and, and, and books, and those are the things that people relate to, and they reflect some of our, uh, our best imagination. Where could we be in the, in the future? And I think if you look back at some of the origins of our early space program and putting humans in Earth orbit and then on the surface of the moon, you know, that was foretold in science fiction by people's imagination. So I think that's what you use to predict. We're only going to go as far as our imagination. So we look at some of those things. Where can we imagine that we would go next and uh, and conceive? And those have planted the seeds that science and reality have followed not that far behind. Yeah, it's actually a great point, Drew. As you guys are answering, I find, and I, I know like one of the traps of doing a podcast like this is it ends up being isolated to the four of us. And I ask these things in my own interest because I find myself stuck in two camps, which is especially from the military background we all come from, when someone says explore, do something never been done, I get super excited. But at the same time, I'll catch myself like hearing, you know, somebody say something, like I said, about Mars and being like, bullshit, like that's never going to work. You know, <laughs> And I shouldn't do that. I mean, I should be the excited guy about exploration. But anyway, thanks for, for kicking us off in that way. I'm sure our resident space Wizard, Preston is burning with desire to expand on the question. So Preston, go ahead. Thanks very much. One of the reasons I was super excited to have both of you on this call is because you both come from the special operations community, right? And so you both were selected and trained into a communities in special operations and drew for you in medicine as well that operate at the edge of things, right? And and you were willing at the time to trade a lot of predictability to maximize your agility in order to, to solve complex problems, react to chaos, et cetera. And then you you enter into NASA, which is known to be a very predictably driven organization. They they like things done a certain way, and they're very they're sort of like by the book kind of folks. But we are now entering into a world, and this is more of a question about looking ahead at the way that the audience members that are listening to this, the firefighters, tactical law enforcement, certainly in the age of COVID, medical teams. As you look ahead, that you see this historically sort of high reliability organization, NASA, that's going to need to adapt to a much more agile environment, a much more team-based environment. And you think about the sort of future assets of, of astronauts or the future profiles of astronauts. Do they look the same? Do we go back to the days of test pilots and astronauts or do we look forward? And there's a bunch of research and science on this, but I'm mostly just curious about how you all think about and I know, Chris, you served as a chief astronaut for a while, and you probably have thought about this question. And Drew, I'm sure you've given this some question. But if you look three, five, ten years down the road, do the astronaut profile look the same as it does now, or does it change, and why? Either one of you can go. I'll probably just start with Drew and then go to Chris just because we're on a podcast. It's a fascinating question. I, I love thinking about this stuff. And Chris and I have both have participated to one degree or another in the selection process, and we have a uh, a selection ongoing right now. It's something that I'm digging into and I want to study more is look at the how our process has changed over the generations. And you look at our the original astronauts that we, you know, we selected in the 60s, they were all white male military test pilots. And then we started to, in the 
just in one of those first couple of classes started to select scientists and, and medical doctors. And, and then there was another phase as we got into the shuttle, the space shuttle era, selecting classes starting in 1978 and selecting a very different mentality, but still very pilot, military pilot, military test pilot heavy, but, but still scientists represented, medicine represented different operational careers. And then I, it's probably leap to the transition uh, of just in the last 15 years when long duration space flight living on the ISS became the only show in town. And that was now we were selecting astronauts for classes, knowing that they were only going to go to the ISS and they were going to live there for a long period of time. And that the more sortie like missions of the space shuttle going to low Earth orbit for a week or two at a time, deploying a satellite and returning, the shift is very different. It's much more of an expeditionary mindset. And going forward, I mean, we're still writing this book. We're still we're still understanding what makes the best long duration astronauts. But going forward, I think that's much more the style of what we're looking for uh, in terms of we we go deeper back to the moon onto Mars deeper space exploration, long duration, and these things that we are learning about and we have learned about over the last decade or so since we started selecting with that mentality, uh, we're going to continue to build upon that. That's awesome. And, And Chris, your thoughts? Not a ton to add, but I often tell people, because you ask, what is long duration kind of space flight like? Well, it's like camping or I've never been a fireman, but I imagine like you do a three a three day shift in the firehouse and you want people there that can contribute not just in the technical way, but in in the firehouse and same thing in the team room or in, in our case to the crew on the station living wise. You want to be enjoy the folks around you and somebody that can flow between leadership and followership. We have sort of a. Um, I don't want to say mature workforce, but it kind of is. There's no entry level first job astronauts. Everybody's it's their second career and they've excelled in whatever they were doing before. So anyone is capable of being the leader of a crew. And we certainly have evolutions where somebody is and takes the lead and maybe the commander of the mission has to step back and is not in charge of that particular event. Spacewalks is a good example. You know, the lead spacewalker might not be the the commander of the crew. And so f- the ability to flow between knowing when you're in charge and knowing when you're taking the fo- following role is, is very important for us. And it's hard to determine that in a selection cycle. But maturity is one of those things that some somebody can kind of not be offended when they have to step back. So it's it's a tough challenge. Like, how do you put all that stuff into a recipe to, to select the right people? We don't have a perfect answer. We have a pretty good solution right now, but they can always improve it. I think what's super interesting is that I know that the astronaut corps for a number of years, I'm not sure if they still are, we're working with the National Outdoor Leadership School or Knowles. And um, when I hear things like expeditionary behavior, I know that the origin of that, right, is a guy named Paul Petzl, who, interestingly enough, was hired by a guy named Josh Miner in the United States, who was hired by Kurt Hahn. Why does this matter? Because Kurt Hahn was one of the people that helped design the original selection systems that the British used that became the OSS and then became 
things like the Navy SEALs or Army Special Operations. And so it's interesting that this lineage all sort of traces back to the same place and comes back together because some of these sort of deeply human things about how do you behave far from home when on an expedition with a group of people and what are the sort of things that the humans are all going to need in order to do that successful that is even when we go to space those variables don't change and so i think what's super interesting is sort of trying to hold on to the things that we know have just always been true for humans working in tribes and those that are sort of emergent and new based on the kinds of problems that we're facing so i just find that stuff super fascinating and i know that it will continue to evolve and in some ways continue to stay the same but i'm going to turn it back to coleman now but thank you very much well let's just do i'd like to do a tactical since we're on selection guys chris i'm just curious this is very much like a groupie type question, right? Anybody who's interested in in what astronauts do, super tactically, when you were going through selection yourself, when you were sitting there, you know, you you're not an astronaut yet. We, what was it like? I mean, what kind of things did you go through? All of us in any selection process, I think, have at some point in time, like, oh, well, maybe. I think I really need to be good at this or I need to show that I'm good at this to get selected because we have this idea of what we think we're getting selected for. So what was it like on the other side of the table when you were being selected? Well, there's a certain degree of, of nerves and they set up the, the interview room to put the person kind of on edge, you know, like and, and to see how the person responds in that semi-uncomfortable scenario. Folks listening to this podcast would laugh at the at uncomfortable scenario when you, you're warm and dry and you're just sitting there talking to people. But when you want to be an astronaut and there's a room full of names that you've read about and people you've seen on TV and now they're right in front of you asking you, why do you want to do this job? It does ratchet up your nerves a little bit. And, and so there was some of that. But then I quickly realize, you know what, these are just people and I'm just having a conversation with them. And when I flip that, and now that I've been on the other side of the interview table at Astronaut Selection, you can see that. You can see when somebody's being genuine and just giving you those answers and not trying to give you the line or try to game the system. I think they're looking for this, therefore I'm going to answer this way. Really, we're just looking for the straight up, who is this person? Who are we, we talking to? And then Back to your super tactical question, you step out of that one-hour interview, it's a week-long process, so there's other things that are very very hands-on, like we'll, we'll do those team-building things, we've all heard of them, you know, you got a rope and a brick and a you can't step over the line kind of thing, how do you solve it as a team? And then some hands-on things, like maybe give them, these parts are a lawnmower, turn it into a lawnmower. We don't exactly do that, but, you know, something that, that demonstrates some type of mechanical aptitude. So there's different types of uh, different aspects to, of the selection process. And each time we tweak those, because we, we understand that maybe some data is biased one way or the other. And so we're always tweaking it, but that's gen- the gist of what we're looking for. And at the point that uh, Chris is, you know, describing at the interview, at this point, we've taken a pool of several thousand, and it's it's variable every year. But I mean, it's been between ten and twenty thousand in recent years. And when that slowly hone in on the group that's interviewed, there's been a number of cuts and lots of evaluation of the paper application at that point. So the people that we are getting to the point of interview are highly accomplished, 
highly qualified people and really looking at the, the the soft skill aspect as much as anything at that point and assessing what Chris has described the, that get our best estimate or prediction of, of what their expeditionary behavior would be like as best we can without really reproducing that. I mean, ideally, we'd take them all on a Knowles trip for two weeks or something like that and really get an idea of what they would be like as a crewmate under those circumstances. And, and it's as Chris described, it's a perfect analogy of uh, not a perfect analogy, but it's a very good analogy of spaceflight because your food isn't exactly right, your sleep isn't exactly right, your hygiene isn't exactly right, just like it is in space. It's just a little bit different. It's not terribly uncomfortable, but you're living like that for a long period of time, and it takes you know the group to get the work done, and you're in an environment that's not perfectly familiar to you, and perfect world, that's what we could run everybody through and do an evaluation then as a combination of, of peer evaluations, but also uh, an assessment by assessors as well. And that's kind of what it would look like, I think. It's interesting that you bring up um, peer evaluations, right? Because I know that, um, and now with the emergence of private astronauts, whatever we're calling them, there's going to be, and I'm sure with some of your international partners, there is the cohort that you can control for and you can select for, but then you're going to go up to the ISS and interact with folks that maybe were selected by a different country or a different mechanism, right? And so I start to think about things of not only about peer acceptance, but also about the ability to get along with very, very diverse folks. And and I imagine that that is a challenge and an opportunity. And I'll I'll just throw it out there. I, I want to lowball that because I don't want to overstep. Well, I think that, Preston, I think you're alluding to that, that there are going to be a lot of people making trips to space that aren't necessarily professional uh, astronauts that are the result of the same processes that we are a product of or our international partners are a product of. Um, I can tell you from the perspective of our international partners, our major space agencies like the, the Russian Space Agency and the Canadian Space Agency, the Japanese and European Space Agency, all do an excellent job of selecting their astronauts. And each one has a little bit of a different flavor to how they do it, but yet we all seem to get to about the same result. Now we're injecting into it other things, like we're going to see potentially astronauts that are selected by potentially commercial industry, spaceflight participants or space tourism. That's not anything that's new that's been around for a number of years, but I, you know, we'll probably see more of that in the future. And what are the processes that will result in those types of astronaut and how do we all coexist together when we live now on the ISS as a result of different processes to, to get us to that point. And that, that is something that we are actively discussing. And like what to what degree should they be trained and to what degree do professional astronauts that are representatives of, of, you know, that are participants in the International Space Station program need to have responsibility and oversight over how this type of astronaut interacts with the ISS or whatever vehicle it is that we're flying on. So all unanswered questions and we're, you know, hotly discussed ongoing right now. But Drew, you guys obviously, and Chris, I'm coming to you right now, you can pile on to that topic, but I just want to add this general theme because, and clear up for us, Chris, but I'm fairly certain based on when you recently got home, that you were on the space station when that first SpaceX vehicle showed up there, I think. And one of the things we wanted to talk about thematically was just this, from flying with the Russians to being on the ISS when the first commercial, I'm just going to call it pod, arrived there to 
different types of astronauts now than the 60s. Is there anything that strikes you as particularly unique that you guys are doing to make sure that these very extremely cross-functional, diverse people at least work together average enough to make it as successful as it is? Yeah. So that first SpaceX crew that arrived, they they were our colleagues and friends. They were government NASA astronauts. And and so I've known them for 16, 17 years, Bob and Bob and Doug. So that was not anything different. But there soon will be wealthy paying customers that buy a ticket on SpaceX and there's different companies that'll broker the deal and give them a seat. There'll probably be some sort of professional or former government astronaut working for one of these companies that sits in the pilot seat because there's an added level of training and proficiency to be ready to take over the vehicle during launch and rendezvous. And the, the person that just paid a couple million or however many it is, I don't know, for the ride doesn't have that level of training. And, and so from what I hear, there'll be three paying customers and one driver of the Winnebago. I think there's going to be some train wrecks of a crew and personality in there. You can't, if somebody's got the, the money and wants to buy a ticket, you know, and there's a company that's trying to get started and they're uh, new to the industry, they're going to take the money and they're not going to care that ah, the person's got a personality issue or they don't work together in this particular team. They'll just, well, it's okay. We'll figure it out. And so, so there will be times where it's stressful as a crew and, and that's where, it's going to be interesting to see it work out. And it would also be interesting because at least in the, the coming five to eight years, the International Space Station will still be maintained and operated by the U.S. government, NASA, with visiting commercial people. And the, that initial blend is what's really going to be different for us. And I haven't talked with Drew about this, but I'm curious to hear his thoughts. If, you know, you got four government astronauts doing their thing. And then all of a sudden, boom, this tornado of three tourists comes through your small little team room. Boy, you'll just be counting the days till that thing undocks, I think. And Chris, so I think I met one of your former colleagues, a guy named CJ, a former Marine at Virgin oh, Galactic. Yeah. yeah. So I know they're doing a different thing, but I don't know if I really thought about this. Is it going to be the case that those paying civilians literally get off and live on the ISS for a couple days? Probably more like two weeks, but yeah, CJ's CJ's uh, business model with Virgin Galactic is slightly different. They're going to launch and do a suborbital thing and maybe have a 20 minutes, half hour and land. They won't go to the space station, but people paying a ticket and getting on a SpaceX ride will go to the space station, live there for some duration of time, 10 days, a week, two weeks, whatever it is, but long enough to have it be significant to the crew on board. And when the first fancy pants customer on the ISS expects to have their dinner served by Colonel Drew Morgan, like what happens, Drew? Well, you know, we're all here to serve. And so if that's what we're, what's on our timeline to do, of course, uh, you know, that's what we'll do. We may debrief it pretty uh, thoroughly, though, when we get back to the ground. <laughs> hey, Drew, can I ask you actually a more, a different, but a little more pointed question? And I'm, and I'm sort of uh, leaning towards your, your knowledge as a, a medical doctor. I'm going to just preface this a second for a little bit of history. So if you look at the way that human airlines were launched, right, the, in the early years after World War II, all the attention was 
by the engineers on making sure the plane stayed in the sky. So there wasn't a lot of attention paid on the humans. And it wasn't until 1978 with United Flight 173 that we started to see the emergence of crew resource management and cockpit resource management and the, and the fact of the human factor. And you can see some parallels in space. Right now, all the, all the effort is in the engineering for the most part, except for NASA. The real money is being spent on just the rockets and making sure these things float. So with that said, to your point, sooner rather than later, Drew, there's going to be somebody who gets up to the space station and much like being at altitude or having an expedition, they're going to have a bad mental health day. And so you're there in the ISS and the the non-professional astronaut loses it. And so what do you actually do? Like walk me through just in your mind, like what happens in the next five minutes? You know, Preston, I think I would I'd go back to how ingrained it is in us the space flight readiness training, how we are trained from the day we show up. One of the first things we do is whether you're air crew, and I mentioned, you know, a large proportion of astronauts have a military flight backgrounds. Some have civilian flight backgrounds, but eventually we're all brought to as close to the same level as we can. And we're, we have that as aviation, the concept of being air crew and being a valuable air crew that works as part of a team cockpit resource management, CRM, is really is stuffed into us from the beginning. And if you're not air crew, you'll go get military uh, flight training to learn how to be a member of a crew. And then eventually you'll become a crew member in a T-38. In fact, just this morning, I had my check ride, my first couple of times back in the T-38 since my space flight. You know, we get right back on the horse not long after we get back uh, from space flight because it is one of our best laboratories for training that skill of CRM and our, our brand of that is space flight resource management. Same concept, that ability to work through a checklist, to work through an emergency with your life on the line. That's our routine laboratory for doing that. And then we take that same thing and we apply it to everything we do. Whether we're spacewalking, whether we're flying the robotic arm to capture a visiting vehicle, that sort of exchange and CRM, SFRM, that is built into our DNA deeply. And that will be something that, that distinguishes us from non-professional astronauts. That this is It is our life. That's what we do from the beginning and all the way through our careers. Chris has been an astronaut for over 16 years, and he's a rack up hundreds of hours in a, a T-38 flying various aircraft as a crew member. And that it is a, a distinguishing feature of, of a professional astronaut, I think, as we go forward. That's really interesting, Drew. I, I, you know, it's easier for me to index on my early training with Chris because we share the same, you know, early life in special operations. So I want to hear about how your early training in the Army, Drew, also influenced. But Chris, I mean, you've been an astronaut longer than you were in the SEAL teams, but are there moments where you still feel like the formative portion of your development was your your first military job? Or, you know, how has that continued to influence your your life as an astronaut? That's pretty funny to ask that because exactly like you said, I was in the SEAL teams for 11 years and I've been here for over 16. But I think you associate yourself most deeply, most intently with those formative years. And I am a Navy person through and through. And uh, some people have asked me, would you go to do uh, Space Force? Nothing against Space Force, but when I realized I would have to give up my commission in the Navy and assume a commission in the, in the Space Force, and in a few years I would be Colonel 
U.S. Space Force retired, I couldn't even fathom that I wouldn't be a Navy guy. And that all goes back to the very foundation of your of your time frame. And just like you, Coleman, traipsing around in buds and then STT and you earn your trident in those first couple years when you're an assistant officer looking up to the officer ahead of you and working with the chief and the, the leading petty officers in, in your platoon and you're learning so much from those people. Even going back to NAPS outside of the SEAL team, when I think back to the gunnery sergeants that were yelling at me and making me do push-ups when I was 17 years old, 18 years old, those years are what really shaped me, at least in the initial trajectory. And the fact that I've been here from 16 years doesn't take away the fact that the foundation was built then. And so I always associate myself as a, as a Navy guy who cut his teeth in the early part of special warfare. Which again, Drew, I was thinking about this when we were preparing is how much, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not going to speak for you, but as an emergency physician, do you, do you really view yourself as a, as a caretaker more than an astronaut even, or, you know, how did your early years really develop you? Yeah, my career early on was an amalgam of, of a little bit of being a soldier and being a physician. You know, I went directly to medical school after I graduated from West Point, but still had those those soldier ethos in me from the beginning. I mean, that's what I decided I wanted to do first. I wanted to go to West Point. I wanted to be commissioned as an Army officer um, and then made the decision later to, to go to medical school. But I between the the mindset of being a, a physician, an emergency physician, that and I knew I wanted to take that with me into special operations and serve that way, serve our special operators. I was very much in the role as much as I enjoyed doing operational things and going to the same schooling and getting the same qualifications as my peer operators, I was still in a supporting role. I was a support guy and I understood that. But, you know, I pursued those things because it gave me a lot of credibility with the operator, though, to be alongside them and be able to relate. And, you know, my patient group then would be more likely to confide in me and that I, they saw me as a peer uh, who has also had the additional skill of being a physician. And I very much have brought that with me now as an astronaut because I view it as a, a skill set that has value, much the way that the the test pilots and pilots, you know, have a skill set that's, uh, you know, of course, is invaluable in space and uh, in the astronaut career field. You know, I think there's a lot of value in having a background in medicine and understanding human physiology, but also understanding uh, humans and human behavior as well. I, I, you know, those are things that I I draw on routinely as a as a result of of that of those experiences early on. Absolutely. That's awesome. It's interesting because it brings me back to one of my sort of core questions that I wanted to sort of ask you both. And it comes back to the first time that I met Chris when he gave a talk at the Wharton School. At the time, he had just come down and he had just been through the incident with Luca, however you want to call it. And you might want to just give some background on that, Chris, about the you're out in a spacewalk and uh, you're with somebody whose helmet starts to fill with with water. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because and I might remember this wrong, so you have to correct me, is that there was a moment where there was the traditional sort of NASA checklist, and then there was also Chris Navy SEAL on a spacewalk with somebody who is doing, kind of having a nonlinear event. And I'm just curious, you're sort of of two minds now, right? You've got your early training and your current training, and I'm thinking about the increase of complexity as, as more and more launches start to happen, and that more and more events like that might happen. And so I'm just curious about how you were thinking 
thinking about that and how you think about developing astronauts for the future to face situations like that? Yeah, and and so just like if you're learning to shoot free throws or a professional basketball player shooting free throws, you do it with repetition. And I think that was ultimately what came over me like a tidal wave was repetition. So as you said, Preston, I was out on a spacewalk with Luca. His helmet started to fill up with water. Emergency situation, we have to head back to the airlock. The only way to get the helmet off is to close the hatch and start pressurizing and and get to a certain level of pressure where we could take his helmet off and he won't die from the high altitude or, or a vacuum. We had to take different paths to get back to the airlock. And as we get there, I remember thinking to myself, so as you said, that we're talking to the ground controller, they're telling us things. And at a certain point, I don't remember anything that he said on the radio. And I was just in my head going, what do my hands need to do in the next like minute and a half to make this situation better and not worse? And I didn't think about it, even to this day right now telling you, I never thought about, okay, I got to do this. I got to go in. I got to close the hatch. I got to crank the handle. It just all happened. And that is shooting a thousand free throws. You know, that's where that came from. Just the pure repetition of going through that in the pool that where we, where we, where we train it. And, and so thinking forward where we are in a situation where maybe some of these tourist astronauts pay extra money to get a spacewalk experience that's like Coleman coming with you in the kill house, you know? I mean, the space is the enemy in that situation. It's trying to kill you. And we think we have it caged where it's not going to kill us, and we do a decent job at it. But any moment, space is trying to kill you. And it's the real deal out there on a spacewalk. So I'm a little bit gun-shy about uh, bringing just tourists out on a spacewalk. It, it To me there's a certain level of, okay, we have to train this person. It's not a joyride. So we'll see how that goes. And I think people at NASA feel the same way generally. So we'll, we'll see. But when a big check comes, some sometimes rules bend. Yeah, I don't, you, this certainly whole conversation doesn't necessarily have to go to the civilians visiting there, Chris, but I think you actually make, you and Drew make a, a bigger point about your early development, your repetition and knowing what to do in an accident you know, Drew, your points about, you know, you're back into the T-38 is it's easy. It's certainly easy for Preston and I to sit here and just be like, ooh, and ah, like Drew and Chris, like all the things you've done. But what you really explain when you explain your background, when you explain selection, when you explain training is a very deliberate and consistent approach to mastering your craft. It's not some magic fairy dust that somebody dropped on you when you graduated astronaut training. It's something you do consistently every single day. And, you know, Drew, I know not everybody has the buddy with the water and the mask story, but I did want to hear from both of y'all or, you know, Drew, I appreciate if you go first is any points where you're up in the space station, you're on a spacewalk, you were on in the rocket, whatever, where things just started to go, not wildly sideways, but you recognized immediately that this is, as Preston says, this is a nonlinear event that we have to deal with. Yeah, I think what comes to mind, uh, and it comes to mind because I know Chris could contribute as well, because the same crewmate that Chris did a spacewalk with, Luca, I did a series of four spacewalks with Luca. Uh, we 
were up there together. We overlapped for seven months on board and we did a, a set of four spacewalks to repair the alpha magnetic spectrometer that we trained for for several months deliberately before we went up there. And Chris did as well. In fact, Chris was a an important mentor through the entire process. This set of four we did three about a year ago in November to the December timeframe, and they went really well. We had a pump failed on board this instrument, which was a, it's a particle detector, and it was losing its cooling system. We needed to replace it. Very complicated set of spacewalks to put it on because it was never supposed to be repaired in space. And so we, a lot of very specialized training, very specialized tools, uh, and, and it went perfectly for the first, first three. Well, the, the last one, had a little bit of drama, not nearly what Chris and Luca experienced with the water in the helmet, but, you know, we had to connect it with a series of tubes through swages, and it was in a very precise, the number of turns you had to put on each of these swages in order for the coolant to flow from the new pump to the instrument itself. And uh, Luca was doing a leak check uh, on one and and indicated that it had a leak and uh, we went through the procedure to slowly tighten us down and stop the leak knowing that we only had this spacewalk to complete the task and that there were I don't know how many millions of dollars spent on this and years of uh, of development to get to this point and we knew that it was coming down to whether or not we could get this one leak to pass the leak check. Anyway, fast forward, in the end, we were able to, we went off script and there was a lot of talk on the ground about what would be the best way. And we we're supposed to be only, you know, one turn, one additional turn, we ended up putting two additional turns on it, you know, and those, and those types of, you know, we're in a situation where we don't know with this extra turn could either ruin it or it could be exactly what we need to do. And there was a, a lot of different branches and sequels this could have gone. And we had to prepare for all those. And we did a lot of things outside that we didn't don't normally do, like our safety tethers. The rule is you never release your, your safety tether. Well, Luca and I got in a situation where we had to swap our, our safety tethers. And I was out on the robotic arm, just kind of in arm's length of the of, of structure of the ISS itself. We had to make ourselves safe, swap swap our roles completely for a variety of reasons. So we were very much off script, but the, the amount of deliberate training that we had and then the enormous team that we had on the ground to troubleshoot and go think through this was a real credit to both the flight controllers, but also everybody that participated in our training that got us to that point, that we were able to go off script and, you know, in the end, pass leak check, and the AMS is up there uh, recording data uh, today. So can, can we just pause for the audience? You kind of blew past one little item there, Drew. Just I want it for verification purposes. You guys came off your safety tether, meaning if you had let go of something, you were you were gone. Well, we like, have. Bye bye. Yeah, so we have a way, we have two tethers available to us, and usually we have always two connected whenever we're, you know, okay. especially when we're in a work site, we usually have two down. But in order for us to, you know, one reels all the way back to the airlock, and that was the one we had to switch. And that's not something that we do. We don't take that lightly, especially yeah. when, you know, one of you is in the arm and just kind of barely in contact with a handrail. And, you know, this was not something that we had planned to do. And so you want to, you know, your IQ 
at that moment cuts in half and you want to make sure it seems simple enough just to, you know, put this hook and lock this hook, but it's very easy to unlock and lock the wrong one or put it on something that's not a valid handrail. So we wanted to be very, very careful, very, very deliberate about that. It's something that's taken very seriously. It's ingrained in us from the beginning. Like it's like one of the golden rules is to make sure that you have that safety tether and you know where it's going and that it's connected properly. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. This is like, it's not like this at all, but this is the only thing I can make it sound like Drew is like, this is the, when you got the whole jump plan for 45 guys to go out of the aircraft at 25,000 feet at night after 30 minutes of pre-breathing with no lights, and you're going to try to get to a drop zone 20 miles away, you know? And, and right when you're on the ramp, your buddy looks at you and he goes, Hey, check this shit out. And you're like, no, 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 no. You're not checking anything out at the last minute. Like we have a, we have a process for this. That's what made me think when you said safety tethers were, um, were released, but, um, just as a break in the action, if we could go from alpha magnetic spectrometers, Chris, back to my son, Ollie's question about pooing and peeing in space. Absolutely. I I was going to say, Chris and I are, you know, you could ask a lot of people, uh, a lot of astronauts uh, for expertise in this, but you're talking to two absolute experts on the space Fantastic. toilet. Right. Chris, space. Go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And as a matter of fact, I should vector your son to YouTube because I, I did a very detailed video on this on this topic because it's the number one topic we get is how do you pee and poo in, in space? And going number one is simple. There's a hose and you, you go in it. There's a small fan that helps the fluid go and doesn't spill all over you. And that same small fan flows through the number two hole. So you put all your stuff there and then you put your paperwork in there as well. And then you're good to go. The main difference is the size of the number two hole is only about that big. So front sight focus and trigger squeeze is important. So you get it in your aim. You can't miss. Yeah. Drew, how, how on earth do you become the tier one NASA operator of pooing in space. Let me hear your your view. For my nine months on board, I think I feel like we were going through a tough time with the uh, with the space toilet. A lot of things were breaking, um, and I I don't accept operator, uh, full response. Operator here, operator here. Yeah, and I had uh, so there were a lot of components to switch out on that, and I feel like I switched them all out at least two or three times. It's a complicated piece of equipment. It's not you know like your toilet at home, and the one on the ISS right now in the U.S. segment is actually a combination of Russian and U. US hardware and they're brought together in a really cool way. You know, Chris described that tube for number one. It takes then that urine and then we convert it back into drinking water. And so all that's all connected with complicated plumbing. And we had a lot of problems with that plumbing in my time on board. And I got very good at doing repairs of the space toilet. To ensure that you were drinking fully filtered systems. But uh Go ahead, Preston. Yeah, I'm actually, it's related, but it's a different question. And so invariably when I'm doing my research, uh, I'm I'm in a situation where I think it's going to go a certain way or I think it'll feel a certain way. And the, the cleanest example of this for me is when the FDNY put me in a burn building, I thought being in a burn building was a lot like the movies. It would look really cool and it wouldn't be that hot. And it turns out it was much hotter than I anticipated and you can't see anything. So this is a lead into the question of, as you guys think back to the first time you 
got in the rocket or and then got to the space station, what were the things that in your mind you thought was going to be a certain way and it was actually very different? And it can either be the physical part of it or the community part of it, either side. Chris, do you want to go first? On launch, that burn building that you described, Preston, is behind you. Okay. And so that's a good place for it to be. But on entry, coming home, the burn building that you just described is right in front of you. And your your whole spacecraft has to go through it. And so my first re-entry in the Soyuz was really eye-opening in the sense that the, that orange glow encapsulates the whole entire spacecraft. There's a window like this far away from your head, a couple inches away from your head, and several thousand degree plasma is right on the other side of the window. And at first I, I didn't, in my brain, I wasn't processing like, okay, six inches from my eyeball is a furnace. You know, I was kind of looking at it like a gee whiz, this is so cool. And then I realized what was happening, like, oh, my God. And uh, and the heat shield is doing its job keeping you alive. So there's a lot going on on entry. Launch is a, is a crazy day, too. But I, I always think that the threat is on entry. On my very first shuttle launch, one of my crew members, Doug Hurley, looked over at me right before we launched and said, a lot of people in the country had to do their job right for us to have a good day. And I was like, oh. That's well said. <laughs> yeah, but the whole process is interesting. And Preston, once you get to the space station and you dock and you go through the hatch and you take off your spacesuit and you're wearing a short sleeve shirt like this, you don't necessarily feel the threat of being in space. It just feels like you're on board a ship and you feel generally pretty safe. Like at sea on a ship, certainly bad things could happen. You could run into an iceberg or something, but... You don't think about that when your crew's steaming through the ocean. You're just kind of there. I had the same mindset on board the space station. It's really getting there and coming home that you think about it. Yeah, I would describe the launch because I've, you know, I I've only launched a space one time, and it was on Soyuz on the uh, Russian rocket. And my impression was that boy, this is a combination of of uh, a lot of different things I've experienced, but maybe not all together at once. The simulator that we practice in for Soyuz is a dead spitten image of the actual vehicle itself. It's really well done. And so when you get in the real vehicle and you get strapped in, it looks very familiar to you. So it's a very high fidelity simulator. And then the, the sensations of acceleration and the, the physiological feel We've been in a centrifuge. We've done aerobatics in an aircraft. And so those, those funny sensations that you feel are, are fairly familiar. So overall, I just felt like it was an overlay of all those experiences. And just I felt very well prepared for that, that moment. And then, and then arrive in space. And then you don't get back in that vehicle again until it's time to come home. Much like Chris described, coming home is a very different experience in, in Soyuz. And I felt like that one was a little bit harder to simulate and i don't i would say not surprising but you know definitely the the deceleration forces and coming through the atmosphere the opening shock of the parachute and then the impact of the ground are all they're all fairly jarring and so that was a little bit harder to reproduce so also when i hit the ground i also was at that point you know i had been in space for nine months and re getting my equilibrium back i was fairly nauseous when i when i arrived and when i arrived in space i didn't feel that way and so there were some distinct contrast between the launch experience and the landing experience. And I think that's fairly typical of most astronauts that have, have had a ride on Soyuz. 
just to keep on this one subject, we speak a lot in terms of mission critical teams that most of the teams, fire, tech, law, and law enforcement, trauma, you guys operate in places of what we call liminality, betwixt and between, right? So you, so for our audience, as just a reminder, think about your house right now. Your house is normal. Your house on fire is liminal. It's, it's, not, it's not your house anymore, but it's also not, you got to get out of it. And so we think about these periods of transition, both going out on a mission or going into surgery or going into a burning building. And, and it's this idea of moving through liminality and being comfortable in liminality. And specifically, we experience it in transitions. And as you you personally are thinking about what it's like to leave, and I know, Drew, you left during the time of COVID. You left before COVID. You ended up in the space station during COVID and had to return into COVID. So those transitions, you're you're experiencing liminality in a bunch of different ways. And so as you think about for the teams who have to come in and out of uncertainty all the time and do well in uncertainty, do you have any advice or recommendations you'd give them on, here are some strategies that we use to manage that? And uh, uh, Drew, since I mentioned you, I'll pick on you first. Yeah, well, so my transition, as you described, was unique at the time. Chris also came back into the, the COVID environment and launched kind of at the beginning of it. I launched well before it and watched it develop kind of uh, beneath our feet. I was had a crew of three on board the ISS for the last segment of my time on board, and we were kind of following along and knew that our transition back to Earth was going to be a little bit unique. Ironically, you know, I, I was up there living in isolation with my crewmates, and then little did I know I was going to come home and then live with my crewmates on Earth, my family, uh, in isolation back at home. I, you know, I'm married, I've got four kids, and that can be a tough transition, like coming back to your family, like any deployment, and that transitional period is in a, is in a critical one, and mine was more or less 100% with them all the time, went from being away from them for uh, close to about 10 months to now all of a sudden I'm with them all the time and have been more or less continuously now since I've been home for eight or nine months. And so it forces you to face those frictions right up front. And I know this is a, is a topic that a lot of operators that deploy and redeploy talk about that transition back to family life. And there's no hiding when you're you're in isolation like this. And just much the way that living with your crew on the ISS, living with your family at home in isolation, I feel like it it increases the highs and increases the lows. You're going to have we have more contact and therefore you're going to have those really great moments, but you have more contact and you're also going to, there's going to be more conflict and there's going to be more friction and more opportunities to solve those types of problems. And while it was fully immersive, I, I think in the end, I think that we, you know, in terms of my transition back to earth, it was better for us. I had a lot fewer distractions. Life is simpler in many ways coming back to COVID, but there was still a lot of problem solving to do and not well understanding what the impact of COVID would be to a mildly immunocompromised astronaut that's been in space for the better part of a year. And some of those bugs had been worked out by the time Chris had landed a couple months later this past fall. But nevertheless, there were challenges uh, for his return as well. Chris, do you want to just add to that? I left Houston in February when COVID was just being talked about. And then as I got into Moscow, the world was, airports were shutting down and, and all of that kind of thing. So so when, when I got there, I had a little bit of a story to tell to Drew, knowing full well that he had a, a much bigger transition to to land in it when when it was still being figured out 
And when I landed just a couple months ago, operations in COVID were were a little more thought through and flushed out. And, and the, like Drew had to land and go over the tundra in a vehicle for four hours to get to an airport that was suitable to take off. That part didn't exist for me. They had figured it out. I just had the normal helicopter ride back to the airplane and things like this. So those months of learning that the that everybody learned uh, COVID, I, I think Drew had a harder return than I did. I, I knew exactly what I was getting into and my family was well-versed in COVID. So uh, it was still weird for me to learn it. And I still am. I'm a newbie at COVID lifestyle. Anyway, don't have anything really significant to add. No, that's Drew. good. Thanks for that, guys. I'll ask Preston to think about something really smart to ask you guys. We'll drive towards the finish line here. What I want to know as we get closer to the end of the conversation is I was watching the New Orleans Saints play the Kansas City Chiefs last night and the commentators were sharing that Drew Brees's children want for Christmas a signed jersey by Patrick Mahomes and don't realize that their father is a is a Hall of Famer but so in the same token Drew do your kids want a signed astronaut Captain Cassidy shirt and vice versa, Chris. Like my guess is that the kids are just happy to have dad home. They don't really care that you just came from space. Yeah. They, though my kids very much see me as just dad. And, you know, I have a lot of my peers like, like Chris, you know, Chris's kids also grew up around other astronauts and they just think that's normal that, you know, a lot of our social interactions are with astronauts. And uh, ironically, they look to some of them as like, they're the, the look of they, wow, that, that guy's an astronaut. And they forget that I am. They just, they, they look to those examples. It's sort of like vi vicariously, they uh, think that's pretty cool. Like, that Dad, did you know the next astronauts. door neighbor was an astronaut? You just make mac and cheese. Like, um, this is confusing. You appreciate this, Drew. My, my son, Ollie, who wanted to know about the poop, he was really small when I got out of the Navy. And as he was getting older, get three years old, four years old or whatever, he kept asking me how I liked it when I was in the Army. Kids just, other things are important, and that, that's a good thing. Chris, how about, I know your kids are much older now. Yeah, so what, what, exactly like Drew said, they, it's just so normal. When in, in, I remember one sixth grade event, it was bring your parent to work day and there were two other astronaut parents in that class and so it's kind of no big deal where's the fireman kind of thing so it's all in perspective you know even for kids as it is adults i guess what i would say is you know it, going back to the theme of some stuff that stays eternal so we sometimes on this on this podcast or a team cast we talk about the sort of hero's journey and some of the sort of mythological archetypes of people that go on long journeys right and one of the things core to that are rituals do you have on the International Space Station as a team, are there rituals that help sort of mark the days or mark the experiences? Or is it seen that way as or is it just a kind of a checklist thing? For me, it's little having little milestones in a big adventure, you know, eating, in other words, eating an elephant one bite at a time. It's difficult when you're in Hell Week, Coleman, on Sunday night to think about Friday afternoon. You just think about the next meal or tomorrow's sunrise kind of thing. And, and the same is true on board the space station. Drew was there for nine months. I was there for almost seven. And, and to think about the whole totality of it when you get there, it seems like so long. And so to have like little chunks of time, okay, three weeks till our first spacewalk, two weeks until a cargo vehicle arrives. That was very, very helpful. And it's helpful for your family, too, like not only for you as the operator, but 
to kind of have those things. Maybe your family's going to visit and then, you know, some other family out of town and they think, okay, when we come home, it'll only be five months to go instead of six. And, and so those kind of things are, are super, super, super helpful, at least for, for me, kind of to, to break it up in, into chunks. Thanks so much. Drew, any thoughts? Um, in terms of like rituals and things that, that mark the time, you know, I was up there for all the holidays. And so it was very important to do things all together as a crew. And I know Chris and his crew did the same thing. We would get together socially maybe once a week or so. Believe it or not, even though there are only a handful of you, you are spread out among this, the ISS, which is, you know, it's like the size of a, the inside of a 747. And so you can be off doing your thing all day long and really only go past each other a couple of times, especially your Russian colleagues in the, in the back half of the ISS. And so you have to make a deliberate effort to get everybody together to eat together once a week. And that's an important piece of a crew cohesion. And you, I mean, I know you guys know that the value of a sort of a shared experience or shared hardship, eating together, shared humor, all those things are important for building crew cohesion. And we're in a situation where, you know, ideally we would train together for months or years together before we launch, but there are frequently last minute crew swaps. And that very thing happened with Chris's crew. There's some just changes around in the flight manifest and you end up flying with people that you've only been together with for a few weeks in some situations. And so sometimes you're building that crew while in flight. Let me add one more thought to this and something, Coleman, that I think all the listeners can relate to. When you're eating an MRE, you'd think it's the best piece of information when t- somebody tells you, hey, you take the cheese from this one and you squirt it in the chicken from this one and you have this amazing gratin meal and the same thing we do on the space station drew enlightened me to some little tricks about took and put in chocolate bars in a wrapper and sticking it in the oven and then smearing peanut butter all over it it, it was like i died and gone to heaven so food is a ritual that is u- a universal whether you're in antarctica in the desert of afghanistan or in the international space station food can make you really happy So going back to something Chris said, you know, what's interesting on this as a researcher that you guys come from two selection traditions, right? So Chris, you had mentioned Hell Week, right? And we know that there's the attributes that the SEALs select for, but there's also the attributes that you need to have on board to survive. And one of them, as you pointed out, is looking at the next evolution, just worrying about the next evolution. And there's a little bit of not caring what the feedback is, right? Because it's all going to be bad and you got to kind of compartmentalize it. On the Army side, you have the long walk where you're getting no feedback back, right? And so in those situations, you have to have a really strong inner monologue to be able to motivate yourself in order to succeed. So these things that we've learned as what you're going to require to succeed in those two processes. So if you were to forget about the attributes and all this stuff you write down, if you were sort of going to give one piece of advice to an astronaut that was going to go spend nine months on the space station, what's like one mental strength that you'd want them to sort of double down on? Yeah, I would say that the importance of pacing yourself, like Chris was talking about breaking it up into pieces. Uh, I talked to Scott Kelly when I found out that my mission was going to be nine months in in length. It was going to be one of the longer ones, and we haven't done a whole lot of missions that have been that length. And so that being my first space flight, it was a little intimidating to think that I was going to go for the first time for that long I had another crewmate, Christina Cook, who was on board with me. It was also her first flight, and she was there for almost 11 months. And it is daunting to be up there for that long, not knowing what that experience is going to feel like. And so the, it is 
super important to you're looking at this as a marathon and you're not going to take off like you're going to run two back-to-back half marathons you're going to take off running like you're running a marathon and it was really important to know those expectations up front that the finish line wasn't going to get moved on me inevitably it does move a little bit mine did move a a little bit by a couple weeks but not a a whole lot and the effect that that could have finding out that your mission is going to be lengthened out you know at the wrong time couldn't be mentally be really a heavy blow to morale if you're expecting one thing when you're talking about lengths of time that long but i'll say when chris arrived in april i knew that i was going to be headed home within a week and a half of him getting there but it was so uplifting to get new crewmates and and chris who is a friend and a mentor and when he arrived i was like you know if they need me to stay for a couple months and roll us out to a year i think chris and i will do just we'll do great and so it was it was really cool drew is it is it true that the iss circles the earth 15 times in one day is that right yeah, 16 times a, a day, yep. So in nine months, you did about 3,820 trips around the globe? Something like that. That's a lot. My advice to somebody doing it is pretty simple. It's just don't be that guy. Don't be an ass. You know, Be the one that's on time. Be the one that gets your stuff done. Be the one that people can rely on. But be humble and be the crewmate you would like to have. And and. Drew's probably rolling his eyes like, oh, yeah, he, here's Chris saying that I couldn't wait to get off the space station and get away from him. <laughs> no, but it, it's it's really that simple. The technical stuff all comes just like Coleman. You, you generally can train somebody to shoot, move, and communicate. But when there's a, a mental block to accepting the training and, and being that guy, then you don't want them on the team. And same thing in space. It's great advice, guys. Thanks for doing this. Preston and I have now fully established that we violate our own rule of we keep all the team cast to 45 minutes. I joke about it every time because we never keep them to 45 minutes. But thanks for your time, Chris. I know you just got home, and uh, your guys' time is valuable both as professionals and parents and family people. So we want to let you go, but if there's anything that you think we're missing, that we missed in the conversation, Drew, uh, we'd like to hear it. Otherwise, we'll just thank you profusely. and. Yeah, or advice to all of our teams, frankly. Well, one thing I wanted to say was it's cool to bring this full circle because the whole reason that I got plugged in with MCTI and going to my first summit a couple of years ago was because Chris was the chief astronaut and we kind of got a tasking to send an astronaut or two. And Chris asked me if I wanted to go and I read its description. I was like, well, that sounds really cool. It seems like it's bringing together a neat group of people. When I showed up at the FDNY Academy, I think it was 2017 or so, uh, I was just blown away by the collection of people and never, it was like an aha moment for me to see all these people from, you know, fire, tactical, law enforcement, medicine, business, pro sports, bring all these people together. They had the same mindset and it was just to be excellent at, at what they do in their special environment. And that regardless of what career field they came from, we're the, the same kind of person. And it was, it's been really awesome to be connected with you guys. I thank you guys for what you're doing for community and drawing a ring around these different communities and bringing them together and cross-talking them. Thank you, Chris, for being a great crewmate and for connecting me to the community. And it's awesome. It's been great talking with you guys. Chris, any final thoughts? 
just an honor to be to be part of it. And Drew and I are the ones talking today, but everybody out there's got stuff to contribute. Absolutely, we can all we can all learn from each other. And uh, thank you and Coleman and Preston for. Uh, putting it all together so that we all can benefit from each other's experiences and training. Thanks for coming on guys. Appreciate it. It was, it was great to have you.